The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Afternoon. Our next case is in the matter of custodial law enforcement recording sought by the City of Greensboro. We will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justice, may it please the court. My name is Patrick Kane. I am representing petitioner appellant, the city of Greensboro, along with my co-counsel, Kip Nelson. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Your honors, the genesis of this case was an encounter between Greensboro police officers and citizens that took place six years ago in September of 2016. It resulted in the arrests of some citizens, and it is a matter that has stirred substantial public controversy. That public controversy has been fueled by portions of video captured by a bystander on cell phone camera that has been posted and is publicly available on the internet. There's also body-worn camera footage from 10 Greensboro police officers who were involved at various points in the encounter. That footage has been released to the Greensboro City Council and it potentially could answer some of the questions that the public is raising. But the City Council cannot publicly talk about that body-worn camera footage because of a gag order placed on it by a North Carolina Superior Court judge pursuant to the statutory scheme of North Carolina General Statute 132-1.4a. Some important things to note, Your Honors. All internal and external reviews relating to this encounter have been completed. All legal proceedings, criminal or civil, have either been completed or are clearly time barred. And there's not a single individual objecting to the city council being able to speak freely on what is contained in those body-worn camera videos. In fact, as the court is well aware, the police officers themselves declined to take part in the appeal before this court and have repeatedly stated that they want the footage released publicly in its entirety. Yet as I stand here before you today, six years after the incident, four and a half years after the gag order was entered, the city council still cannot speak to the public about the incident. Did, was there any attempt to go back to the trial court judge uh, uh, or, I mean, let, let me back up. Trial court said uh, or asked when you made the motion to modify, uh, the trial court said, have they watched the video? Uh, the response was no. And she said, well, why don't they watch the video first? So was there any effort after that to have folks watch it and then go back to the court? Or was it just immediately appealed from that order? I believe it was uh, mostly just immediately appealed, Your Honor. And I'd say that the reason that the city council members did not seek to watch the video before seeking modification 
was because the gag order itself placed the possibility of criminal contempt on those individuals should they violate the gag order. Isn't that true with any uh, court order? There's a potential for um, some type of contempt if that order is violated? Yes, Your Honor, but in this case, it's particularly abhorrent because it was a prior restraint on speech of public elected officials. Well, I know that's how you're characterizing it, but what we have is a statute that says these are not public documents, uh, and then we have a uh, provision that allows the trial court in its discretion to, after considering various factors, uh, to uh, then place conditions. Uh, was the statute violated, or is the statute unconstitutional? Has that even been argued? We did not take the position in challenging the gag order that the statute was facially unconstitutional. 132-1.4a allows for the trial court to do exactly what Your Honor said and evaluate a number of factors and then make a, d a decision in his or her discretion as to whether to release, whether to place restrictions on release, whether to not release at all. That discretion has to be constrained by constitutional principles. And here, it was not. There is no question that the General Assembly, when it enacted this statute in order to deal with the difficult situation that body-worn camera footage presents, to strike a balance between public and private interests, to make the trial court the initial gatekeeper of the, uh, whether, whether there would be a release. I think one thing that's important, uh, Chief Justice Newby, to your question is, you are absolutely correct that 132-1.4a does not make body-worn camera footage uh, presumptively public. But it also does not make it presumptively private. If you look back at what was happening before this statute was enacted in 2016 by the General Assembly, you had law enforcement agencies taking one of two positions. On the one hand, some were saying, this is a public record, so we have to release it. On the other hand, you had law enforcement agencies saying, this is a personnel record under 168-168 or the county counterpart 153A, and because it does not fit any of the 12 enumerated uh, situations in which personnel records are considered public records, then it was private and could not be released. What the statute did, what the General Assembly did, was say it's neither presumptively public nor is it presumptively private. And it is in its unique category that thus requires, when release is sought, a trial court to be the initial gatekeeper of whether or not that is going to be released. Certainly, the General Assembly intended that when a trial court was exercising the discretion provided to it under the statute, that it would do so within the boundaries of the United States Constitution and the North Carolina State Constitution. And so, here, so what could the court have done to this specific order, in your view, to make it um, uh, compliant with the Constitution? Well. First and foremost, Your Honor, I think that in order to comply with First Amendment jurisprudence on prior restraint gag orders, there has to be 
an explanation that allows for fulsome appellate review. And that is wholly lacking here. All the trial court did was check some boxes and gave no indication as to how factors were weighed and what factors were given what weight or what other factors may have been considered in order to decide that it was appropriate to forever gag the City Council of Greensboro from talking about this matter of public importance. But it says specifically it's not a forever gag. It says that the parties can seek modification. Well, let's go back to the AOC form that you're um, questioning. So in your view, the statute requires a written order that explains the trial court's uh, weighing of the various factors. Uh, In the event that the restrictions placed on the release is a gag order, yes, that is my contention. But it's always going to be that. If there are any restrictions placed on the release, it will be, to some extent, quote, a gag. I disagree, Your Honor. Okay, show me an example. I think that what typical restrictions that are placed on release are things like blurring out the faces of innocent bystanders who happen to be captured on the video. Those are the type of restrictions and conditions that are most uh, prevalent in the release of these uh, in the release of these videos. So the the city council people would be uh, prohibited from identifying potential witnesses that they may have seen in the videos. So they're gagged. If that that condition or restriction was placed on the release, yes. And and that makes sense. That's not a gag order. Well, it is a gag because they can't disclose what they've seen. Or who who they see. I'm I'm sorry, Jeff Servant. I said, or who they see. Right, but but they can discuss what they've seen. And there's a difference between protecting the uh, anonymity of someone who has no, is not germane at all to the video and saying that in, particularly in the circumstances here, where there is incomplete video footage that's available that's generating public controversy, that the whole reason they sought the video in the first instance was so that they could answer their constituents' questions about the full context of what transpired. That's a presentation that you would make to the trial court with regard to what use could be made of this, and apparently was made to the trial court. The trial court came up with uh, its order. Um, I I, I think what what got us going on this discussion was my saying, well, what could the trial court have done Uh, to its order to make it constitutionally compliant. So other than do a complete written order, what else would the trial court need to do? Well, the trial court would need to satisfy strict scrutiny in that written explanation. So so when you look at Seattle Times Company versus Reinhardt, isn't there a discussion about that if someone has come into possession of information through a judicial order, that uh, that's not the same thing as uh, other types of uh, 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 unconstitutional gag orders with regard to the limitations that are put on uh, the use of that? That is what Seattle Times discusses, and it discusses it solely in the unique situation of pretrial discovery. 
No court has ever extended, until the Court of Appeals did here, no court has ever extended the rationale from Seattle Times beyond that of litigation discovery. And that makes sense, because back to my comment originally, what the uh, General Assembly did with 132-1.4a was make body-worn camera footage neither presumptively public nor presumptively private. In Seattle Times, the court is very specific that civil discovery, and it may not be limited to civil, that case was civil, but pretrial discovery is conducted in private. And so when you have a situation where the presumption is that it will be private, yes, then if an order is made that would allow the uh, parties to the litigation to have access to that, it's not the same as what happened here, where it's neither presumptively private nor is it presumptively public, but the trial court made the, found, made the finding that release of this footage was necessary to advance a compelling <coughs> public interest. And the second that finding is made, we are outside of the Seattle Times framework. And that's why using that framework here is particularly dangerous. It gives under the guise of you can't have this except by the grace of the legislature, so therefore any restrictions are appropriate well, and let acceptable. Me, let, let, me, let me ask a, a, a somewhat different question. My understanding of your argument is that it is directed solely to the condition. In other words, that you're not complaining about anything other than the limitation upon the ability of the council personnel to uh, discuss the what they see in public. Correct. That, that's correct. The, the are gag you, order that was added as a restriction. Are, are you first of all? Are you contending that the there would be any sort of constitutional violation in the event that the trial court had concluded? I'm not going to authorize release of this information to the council or to the city at all. Would it be a constitutional yes. violation? I'm not sure, Your Honor, but it could be subject to that decision could be subject to reversal by an appellate court. On, st on statutory grounds, not constitutional grounds? I'm sure that there's probably some scenario in which constitutional rights would be implicated by a decision not to release at all. But I, I think for the most part what the statute does is set out a two-part process, one being determination of whether release is appropriate, and then if it's determined that release is appropriate, that the trial court can, in its discretion, constrained by constitutional principles, can place conditions or restrictions on that release. And I, I'll give you an example, Your Honor. If box one, which is release is necessary to advance a compelling public interest, and box eight, which is good cause exists to release all of the footage, if those were the findings made by the trial court, and then the trial court said, and no other findings were made, no other boxes were checked, and the trial court said, but I'm not going to release it. I think that it would raise some serious questions as to why finding that release is necessary to advance compelling public interest 
and that good cause exists to release all of the recording, why that was then not released. And I think uh, I, I will bring up a constitutional principle that I think could be impacted there. And that is the uh, Article 1, Section 3 of the North Carolina State Constitution that gives the people the sole and exclusive right to regulate the government and the police thereof. Since body-worn camera footage clearly deals with police interactions and encounters, I think that would be triggered. And if there were a determination that a compelling public interest would be advanced by release of this police footage and good cause existed to release the entirety of the footage, and yet the trial court nevertheless said we're not releasing it, I think that the constitutional right of the people to govern would be impacted. All right. Let me ask you then a second question. I mean, I'm going to your, your colleagues uh, representing the amicus curiae have asserted that it's obvious why the trial court did what, what was done. They were concerned about officer privacy. And I understand your argument that they don't, the specific officers in question aren't interested in this here. But assuming for purposes of discussion that a tr trial judge was concerned for whatever reason about the safety of officers depicted in a, a body-worn camera video, short of simply denying release at all, what could a trial court constitutionally do in your view to, to uh, protect the uh, officers involved? I think there's probably a number of things that no. the trial court could do. What the trial court cannot do. Well, I mean, I'm, I want to know what the trial court can do. I think it's pretty clear what what you think the trial court can't do. But uh, what could one do? I mean, how do you, if if you have that concern, short of refusing to release the information at all, what could a trial court do? I think that a trial court could place any number of potential conditions on that release that would protect the uh, safety of the officers. But those would have to be, if, if what the uh, restriction is, is a gag order impacting and restricting and prohibiting speech, then it would have to, the trial court would have to satisfy strict scrutiny and, and explain in a way that can be reviewed by this court to understand how the trial court got to its ultimate decision, it would have to explain the compelling state interest and why there were no other least, uh, less restrictive means. And in fact, in uh, the Fourth Circuit said relatively recently in In Ray Murphy Brown, a gag order that is not supported by an explanation that discusses the less alternative restrictions that were potentially uh, reviewed and rejected, that gag order is unconstitutional under the First Amendment. I mean, let's say, let's say hypothetically that the uh, trial court was to say, yes, I think on balance we ought to release this information, but nobody can name the members of the city council can talk about it, but they can't name the officers involved. Does that have to pass strict scrutiny? Yes, I believe that would have to pass strict scrutiny. And there would need to be an explanation as to why that gag order 
the trial court believed was necessary to serve a compelling state interest and was narrowly tailored to address the threatened danger that is required for a gag order to be constitutional. And one last question, and I'll yield the floor to my colleagues. Uh, is there any difference in the applicable law arising solely from the fact that we, the uh, individuals subjected to this order are elected officials, or does the rule that you're proposing apply to basically all citizens? I, I think that the rule applies to all citizens, but when you take it into the realm of elected officials, which the United States Supreme Court have said have uh, unique and special First Amendment rights under cases like Bond v. Floyd and Elrod v. Burns. Uh, in fact, in Bond v. Floyd, it says elected officials have an obligation to speak on matters of public importance, not just a right, but an obligation. So I think the analysis becomes slightly different when the gag order is on elected public officials as opposed to, say, a private attorney. And a gag order was issued contemporaneously on the attorney for the individuals who also petitioned for release, the two who were uh, arrested. And I think the analysis is slightly different. It's a gag order, presumptively unconstitutional, but I think that the analysis differs slightly in the fact that the individuals gagged by the gag order on the city council are elected public officials who have this obligation to speak on matters of public importance. You don't, you don't disagree that we're to look at this as of the date that the judge entered her initial order, January 22 of 2018, and then the subsequent order uh, on the date uh, it was filed on February 23, 2018. That's, that's the snapshot. Those are the snapshots we're to look at, correct? Yes, the snapshot I would say is even narrower, and it's probably just the February order declining modification of the gag order. And the trial court found seven of the eight conditions uh, in its order of January the 22nd. Uh, do you contest uh, that the court abused its discretion in finding any of the items that it found in that, in that initial order? Not with respect to determining whether release was appropriate, because the court did, in fact, find that release was appropriate. What, where the trial court abused its discretion was then deviating from First Amendment jurisprudence and issuing a gag order without satisfying all of the requirements that the United States Supreme Court has put in place under the First Amendment for the issuance of such a content-based prior restraint. So, so you would be here, regardless of the explicit language in the order, if the trial court had simply said uh, the first three or four sentences of attachment A, which basically say uh, you're uh, only to use these, uh, you know, city council members, city attorney, uh, uh, you're only to uh, use these uh, internally. Uh, and not to discuss them publicly. If they just stopped there, you still would be contesting uh, the constitutionality of the order. As long as I'm understanding Your Honor's question correctly, that prohibition of discussion publicly was involved, then yes. 
That's a content-based prior restraint on speech, otherwise known as a gag order. And in order to pass First Amendment scrutiny, it needs to satisfy strict scrutiny. It needs to articulate a threatened danger. It needs to show that no other less restrictive means were appropriate. And I think that yeah, so it seems to me, and I think you said this already, if the trial court checks box one, release is necessary to advance a compelling public interest, and box uh, eight, there's good cause uh, shown to release all portions, regardless of what it finds, that uh, how damaging this could be, how it might disclose individual uh, identity and create uh, uh, threats of harm or uh, other uh, reputation or safety, uh, a serious threat to the administration of justice internal, regardless of whatever else it finds. If it finds one and eight, uh, you think that uh, uh, how the information can be discussed publicly uh, cannot uh, be controlled? No, I'm not saying that it can't be controlled. There, there could be very good reasons for the trial court doing what the trial court did. Well, it, it found confidentiality is necessary to protect either an active or inactive internal or criminal investigation or potential internal or criminal investigation. Release could cause serious threat to the fair, impartial, and orderly administration of justice. Release may harm the reputation or jeopardize the safety of a person. I mean, and, and I didn't even read them all. There are others that talk about the danger of the public disclosure of this information at the time, January 22 of 2018. Yes, Your Honor. And at the same time, looking at the date that the motion for request for modification was denied, the, uh, the city made very clear all criminal matters had concluded, all internal investigations had concluded. So some of those things in this case that Your Honor references were not in play on the date of the, uh, the denial of the motion for modification. But, and I think, Your Honor, uh, with respect to the failure of the trial court to show less restrictive means, we can look to what the police officers argued in the trial court and what the police officers asked for now. The police officers argued that what they didn't want to happen was for the council to get the footage and to be able to selectively communicate with the public that which the council felt it wanted to communicate. It wanted any discussion to be in the full context of the footage. That was the concern. That concern could be addressed by what the, what the police officers ask for now, which is the footage being released to the city council and then if they were to discuss the footage, that would have to be publicly released so that the, uh, so that the public could examine the, trial, the, the city council's comments on the footage in the context of the footage itself. And I'm into my rebuttal time, so I want to just finish with one important point, and that is that the rationale of Seattle Times has a flip side, and that is if you cannot keep this footage private except by the grace of the legislature. Then the same rationale would apply and allow virtually any type of restriction. So the trial court 
could have said, because you don't have the right to keep this private, I'm going to release it, and based on an ongoing civil litigation brought by uh, the arrestee, I'm going to tell the police officers that they are not allowed to discuss or explain anything that happens in the videos to educate the layperson who would be seeing it. And if the Seattle Times rationale is applicable on an absolute basis to 132-1.4a, that is an equal danger, and that can't be what the General Assembly intended. Unless your honors have further questions, I'll save the remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. Uh, we'll hear from the Amcus Curia. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. You may it please the court. The non-disclosure order, which prohibits the public discussion of non-public information obtained from a non-public source, is constitutional in all respects. To reach the opposite conclusion, the city conflates the non-disclosure order, which simply limits the disclosure of non-public information, with a traditional gag order, which targets the discussion of any topic based on its contents. There are three reasons that this court should affirm the Court of Appeals. First, the city does not have standing to pursue this appeal because it is not aggrieved by the trial court's order. The city has conceded that its First Amendment rights are not at issue, and instead, the rights at issue are those of its council members. But the city has provided no basis in law to support the assertion that, it's, that it can assert its council members' rights. Second, the order meets, the order is subject to and survives intermediate scrutiny. Under the test laid out in Seattle Times. So, so, so you're not contending then, Mr. Edwards, that there's no First Amendment implication to the trial court's order, right? That's correct, Your Honor. And so really the issue, I mean, both of you agree that there are First Amendment considerations at issue here over and above the statutory rules. The, the difference between you is what the standard ought to be under the First Amendment and how it applies. I think that's right. It's, it's sort of a track. I mean, if it's not, tell me. But it's, it's, uh, if, if I've misstated it, please feel free to tell me. But no, I think that's right, Your Honor. I think that under the city's view, it's, it's, first, it's a strict scrutiny analysis for a number of reasons that I disagree with. Under our view, because of Seattle Times against Reinhardt, it is an intermediate scrutiny analysis, and the order meets and exceeds the intermediate Und, Under either set of circumstances, is the trial court obligated to make some sort of findings over and above those that are reflected in the present order? So I think the findings are different for each one, but I think they're, I don't believe that, well, let me back up. No, under either standard, probably under strict scrutiny, but not under intermediate scrutiny. And tell me why. And so intermediate scrutiny is about a reasonable fit between the restriction and the government objective. And so it doesn't need to be the best fit, and the trial court doesn't need to consider least restrictive alternatives. I think for that reason, if you look at the Fourth Amendment, at the, at the strict scrutiny cases or the intermediate scrutiny cases cited in our brief, the way the court analyzes it, and the way the court analyzes it in Seattle Times is actually just by saying, well, these are the justifications, and here's the fit analysis. It's not based on. So, that you, so you read Seattle Times as, as if the court on appeal 
made those determinations. I think that's right, Your Honor. I think it's a legal conclusion. I think the fit analysis is a legal conclusion because the intermediate scrutiny standard doesn't require that the narrow t or that the tailoring be the best fit. It just requires that it be reasonable under the Constitution. Under strict scrutiny. All right. And, and, before, and I want you to move on to strict scrutiny in a second. But let me ask you one more thing about intermediate scrutiny. The, the justification that you've put forward in your brief, and I've already alluded to this, was, was, was a privacy interest on the part, presumably, of the officers. Uh, under, intermediate, under intermediate scrutiny, as you understand it, uh, what showing is necessary to establish the, the strength of that issue? That's probably the wrong word, but the, the, the strength of the efficacy of that issue in, in the particular set of circumstances that are under, under discussion? Well, I think that given the trial court's order, which finds that that disclosure would harm someone's reputation or jeopardize someone's safety, which the city has not contested on appeal, I think that finding of fact is dispositive of that issue. So I think that the finding of fact that it could lead to harm if the privacy is not protected would be enough. And I think in this case it is enough because the city has conceded that finding of fact is supported by substantial evidence. The, under the strict scrutiny standard that we were just speaking about, I think the, the issue would be a little more nuanced. Uh, under strict scrutiny, there would need to be some sort of least restrictive means analysis. But here, again, under intermediate scrutiny, the question is much broader and about whether or not there is just a reasonable fit. I, I didn't see anything in your brief, and the ultimate question is, did I miss something? Uh, I didn't see anything in your brief discussing as an argument in the alternative whether a strict scrutiny, strict, strict scrutiny showing could be made here. Your colleagues have suggested, at least as I read their reply brief, that you've conceded that. What do I make of your, the two of you's discussion on that subject? Well, I think that, I, I think that if this is not a time, a content-neutral time, place, manner restriction, that is, that is my response to the strict scrutiny argument. I don't think that the findings of fact are sufficient or that the discussion is enough to survive strict scrutiny. Okay. But again, I think that there are other reasons. One is intermediate scrutiny, and the other is that the order is a content-neutral time, place, manner restriction. And I think that one of those two buckets, if you will, is where this order properly lies and the way it should be analyzed. Turning to the intermediate scrutiny analysis, I think that Seattle Times against Reinhardt should be dispositive in this case. This is a non-public, this is non-public information that is received by the city only as a matter of legislative grace. I take the city's point that it's neither presumptively public or presumptively private, but I do have, I think I have an issue with that. I think that's a binary choice. And in 132-1.4a, subsection B, the General Assembly has elected to remove this from the realm of the Public, Re of the public Records Act. And so I think by definition, it's not something exempt from public disclosure under the Act, a public record that under certain conditions may be excluded from disclosure. It's something that is altogether removed from the realm of disclosure. And so this is a... It's a non-public record, and access, much like civil discovery, is a matter of legislative grace. If the General Assembly wanted to take this body-worn camera footage and remove it from the public eye, it could do so. Uh, the city hasn't advanced some argument that it couldn't, and so I think that the legislature could do so and could completely prevent people 
from accessing the footage. So given that, we have a non-public document, and it's not a traditional prior restraint. Uh, there's a quote in Seattle Times, and it's a Justice Powell concurrence from another case, uh, basically says that a prior restraint restrains speech on a topic regardless of source. And so here, as, as I pointed out in the brief, the city has a number of alternative sources for this information. There is, as the city concedes, some public information out there about what happened. I, I would submit to you that the city could also do uh, hearings or, or some sort of public gathering where they could discuss the contents, not the contents of the footage, but what happened on, in September of 2016 with the participants in the event. But, but I understood the city council's uh, refusal to view the footage to flow from their view, their contention, um, that, that this order was so broad that they couldn't really tell whether what they might say could, um, by the judge, be considered to be inappropriately discussing the content of what they saw. And that, in, and in fact, um, one of the orders that was also entered against the uh, counsel for some of the individuals involved has now been the subject of further uh, of a disciplinary proceeding against that counsel. So, so it, it does seem that um, this order was extremely broad, and that the city council's reservations in in uh, understanding what they said, what it, what they could or could not do, were valid. I have two responses to that, Justice Earls. Uh, the fir first is, as I hear your question, there's kind of a void for vagueness concern. Uh, the city has not raised that issue on appeal, and I think it's waived. Well, I, I think that it's in, in part in response to your contention that this is just time, place, and manner, and and it, it, the, that it's that is content neutral. But if the city, you know, a time, place, and manner would be, you can talk about it on this date. You can uh, do it in the city council chambers. Um, you can uh, you can uh, use your city council blog. There might be there might be some time, place, or manner restrictions. But to, but to say you can't talk about it publicly, how is that how is that specific enough that it's just time, place, and manner? But so. Starting the time, place, manner analysis, thinking about what is a time, place, manner restriction, it needs to be content neutral. And this is content neutral. It does not prohibit speech based on its communicative content. And that's. Well, but, it, but, it, it, but it's explicitly saying they can't talk about what they saw in the video. And under the City of Austin against Reagan National Advertising case that we submitted in our memo of additional authorities, you're allowed to look at this, the court will be allowed to look at the source of the information and still be a content-neutral restriction. And so the court can say, you can't talk about what you've learned expressly from the video, but if you didn't learn it from the video and you have independent knowledge of it, you're free to discuss that. I think that's, in many ways, very similar to the to, to, uh, protective orders entered in civil litigation routinely where if you learn something independently, you're free to use it however you want. However, if you learn it through the matter of legislative grace, through the conduit the legislature has given you, you're restricted from speaking about it. But, but I understood the city council to, to want to be able to 
tell the public, here's what was recorded. By, so the public already has part of this incident, which took place on a, in the public. This is not like something that happened in a private home. Am I correct about that? It was, it was outdoors, that's correct. Yes. And, and this is body-worn cameras bought by taxpayers, worn by police officers, engaged in their public official duties of policing for the city of Greensboro, correct? That's correct. And that, that the public saw this private citizen video, which was only part of the incident, and city council members wanted to be able to discuss what video evidence showed of the rest of the incident. The city council members can still discuss the truth of the rest of the incident. They can still engage in some sort of factual finding or some sort of broader conversation about the video. But how they can't discuss the video itself. But how can they do that if what they've learned about the broader context of the incident they learned from watching the video? I think they would be allowed to pursue public avenues to gain that information. I just don't think they could discuss the specific contents of the video. And I think that goes back to intermediate scrutiny. I don't know if this is the correct conclusion or the one that I would have come to if I were the trial judge, but it only requires a reasonable fit between the, the restriction and the ends. And so here, I think that that is a reasonable conclusion that the city council can't discuss the video because it implicates, as the city concedes, the safety and reputation of a third party. Well, just on the question of intermediate scrutiny for a minute, in terms of reasonable fit, uh, is it your contention that an indefinite ban with no time limit or no events that would make the ban go away, that that's a reasonable fit to the concerns that um, you're suggesting the court properly held here? I want to be very careful in how I answer that, but I think it is, and that's because protective orders in civil cases typically do not expire. Uh, the city is left open in this case. It can return if in five or ten years or after the conclusion of this appeal, if it wants to go back and make its case to the trial judge, it has every right to do so. The trial judge explicitly left open the possibility that the city would come back and that the city could seek modification. And so based on I think the city's concession that we're evaluating this in the time frame of January, February 2018, when these investigations are ongoing, uh, at least in part of that time frame, and then when there are still real safety concerns, I think that is a reasonable fit based on the circumstances. But if part of what the city council wants to be able to do is to respond to their constituents who are unhappy about this incident and asking them for accountability in their official capacities as city council members, how, how is it reasonable to, to give them no opportunity to ever be able to say, well, here's when we can get back to you, members of the public? I think they can get back to the members of the public on what occurred that night. They just have to find other channels through which to do it. It's, it's not that they're prohibited from speaking on the incident itself. They're, they're free to host listening sessions. They're free to do whatever they, they want or need to do to get public information out there and to raise public accountability. Uh, but the problem is they can't do it based specifically on the body-worn camera footage because the legislature has concluded that that's a non-public record. Well, except that under the terms of the statute that, that gives the trial judge the authority to decide whether or not to release the, the body camera footage, this judge decided that it, it can be released. So that, 
doesn't that take it out of the completely non-public realm? Not under the test in Seattle Times. It's just traditional non-public information that is provided on a limited basis. And so that's not a traditional prior restraint. It's not so, so your reading of Seattle Times is that a state can pass a statute to make any information non-public and First Amendment concerns uh, um, under strict scrutiny lo no longer apply? That's not my contention. I think that in this context of body-worn camera footage, the state could make the state can make the information non-public. It has, and here the ac access to it is a matter of legislative grace. If there are other scenarios where the state takes something out of the public sphere, I think there may be different First Amendment concerns. But that would be a facts and circumstances type analysis, depending on what was removed from but, the public sphere. But what is the limiting principle? As I understand. Um, the appellants here, the limiting principle is if it's in litigation, if it's something that you're only getting because you're entitled to in litigation, then, then um, interme only intermediate scrutiny applies. But, but what's to stop the General Assembly from deciding all sorts of things should no longer be public? Um, how, how, what makes body-worn camera footage somehow different from any government documents? So two responses to that. The first about it being in litigation, again, just because something is received pursuant to a protective order doesn't mean it's going to become part of the public record. So in, in discovery, you receive hundreds of thousands of documents, and then you, you use you know, 30 or 40 at trial. And so the rest of those documents would still be subject to the protective order indefinitely, I believe. And so it's not just that it's in litigation. I mean, further to that point, I think the Supreme Court has uh, recently cautioned against Reading its, reading its opinions too narrowly in the sense that they should be limited by their facts. Um, the specific case that comes to mind would be the Ford Motor Company against Montana 8th Judicial District case um, where the court kind of lambasted the appellant for saying that something was dicta. I, I think the court would intend that Seattle Times, and I think Seattle Times should be interpreted based on its principles. And so the limiting principles in Seattle Times, they are what they are, but in, in the case of the General Assembly taking things off the table and moving things into the private sphere, again, I think that's a facial challenge to the statute instead of an as-applied challenge. Well, except here, they're not saying that, uh, as I understand the appellant's argument, they're not saying that you can never have, that you can never release body, body camera footage but put some restrictions on, on um, how, who can talk about it and how. They're not saying it never can be. They're saying in this particular case, the, the court did not make the findings that were necessary to justify the broad order that it entered. I disagree with the city's position. I think that under intermediate scrutiny, the findings that the court made, that there is a privacy interest here, specifically that it would harm someone's reputation or harm someone's safety, and then the tailoring of the order to the specific issue. It just needs to be a reasonable fit, and it does not need to be. I think it's Ward against Rock against Racism that says it doesn't need to be the best fit or the fit that <clears throat> the reviewing court would come out with. It just needs to be reasonable based on the facts and circumstances. And again, the city, le the trial court left open the opportunity for the city to come back and seek modification on based on other circumstances. And the city did come back and seek modification. And it was denied. At the time, the trial court found, and the city has not challenged, that there was a basis 
for not for non-disclosure that it involved safety concerns, privacy concerns. Well, as I as I read the transcript of that hearing, um, the trial judge just said, "What they haven't watched it? Motion denied." So, what 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 do we understand about why the modification at that time was not allowed? Your Honor, I want to make kind of a prefatory point to that, which is the city's not advanced that as a basis for vacating the order, so I think it's waived. But even if that were the case, I think it's fair to uh, fair to read the trial court's order as saying that the circumstances had not changed and that the problem was that the city had not even endeavored to watch the video, even though the, cir- the circumstances had not changed. That, that brings me back to, I think, the point that I started with, which is the standing issue. The city has identified no basis in our law that it would that would allow it to assert the rights of the city council members, which it has conceded are the rights at issue here. The First Amendment is a personal right, and under our common law, personal rights can't be assigned. More specifically, both the First Amendment and the Declaration of Rights contemplate that the rights are personal. And as at least, if I understood, Mr. Kane's briefing, and he can certainly correct me if I misunderstood it, and I invite him to. He said at one point that, in essence, like all entities, the city acts through its officers and agents, and that council members are, in essence, among the officers and agents of the city, and therefore the city ought to be able to proceed in this case. What's your response to that, assuming that that's his argument, if he didn't tell me? I draw a distinction between the officers and their official capacity, which would be, which would relate back to the city, and the individual personal freedoms that they have as as United States. So, is your your argument that a, a public official acting in their his or her official capacity does not have any individual rights? I think they have individual rights as an individual, and so the case would need to be brought in the name of the individual. Well, their argument here seems to be, at least again, Mr. Hank, Mr. Kane can correct me if I'm misstating it, but they're saying, in effect, we're members of the city council. We've had public concerns expressed to us about this incident. We would like to address those concerns. We're getting them because we are members of the city council, not because we're private citizens acting individually. And therefore, that's why we want this. And so we are, in fact, I think, according to them, acting in their official capacity, at least in that sense. I mean, nobody's, I mean, we're not talking about liability in the sense that you would with immunity. I think when we're talking about them in their official capacity, they're acting as agents of the city. And so their First Amendment rights would tie back to the city. It's their individual capacity where they would experience that infringement of First Amendment rights. And so if they were, if they had filed a separate suit or if they had filed a notice of appeal as individuals, I think there would be standing. But as the city concedes, it doesn't have any First Amendment rights at at issue in this case. And I don't think that the official capacity fiction should give the, the council members individual rights, at least if they're not personally before the court. The, city's, the, the city has pointed to no case law that would suggest that it has the authority to enforce the rights of its members in their official capacities. And in addition, all of the cases that the city cites are legislators suing in their individual capacity for purported restrictions on their First Amendment rights. Or at least suing separately from the bodies of public officials that they belong to. That's correct. 
And I think that that kind of parlays into this issue that the city has raised on the right to speak on important issues or the right to participate in government. Uh, I don't think that argument holds water, uh, particularly when we're talking about the right to participate in government. The people have participated in government by electing these officials. This is not a restriction on campaign speech, but as Justice Newby, as you pointed out in your concurrence in Committee to Elect Ann Forrest, this, we have a Republican form of government, and so the, the people, the individuals that the city council members contend that they have a right to converse with, they've participated in government by electing officials who can represent them on the city council. And the city council members are not prohibited from participating in governance because they're allowed to discuss the contents of the video among themselves. And so that, that setup should be constitutional under our constitution. The cases that the city cites, I think it's Peepers out of the Eighth Circuit, that case is about a, a particular commissioner who was not allowed to participate fully in council meetings. And so in that case, the court held that there was not a that the individual was not allowed to participate in government and it violated the First Amendment rights. Here, everyone is allowed to participate and to govern and to talk about the policy at issue publicly. It's simply not, it's just simply that the city is not allowed to speak about the particulars of the body-worn camera footage. Very quickly, I want to touch on again the content neutrality and the time, place, manner, nature of the restriction. I don't believe I finished that with Justice Earls earlier. The, the order itself is content neutral because it does not restrict speech based on its content. It restricts it based on the location, the source from which it is derived. And it's a time, place, manner restriction because it limits the time and the place where the city council members can talk about the speech. But it doesn't limit speech. In let, me, let me stop you just for a second. Why is it not um, limiting discussion about a topic when it says you can't talk about what's on the video? Because they can still talk about the, the incident, they can still talk about the facts they learn about the incident, and they can talk more broadly about the policies implicated by body-worn camera footage. It, the, the Supreme Court in the Austin against Reagan National Advertising case we cited said you can look at where the speech comes from. You can look at its location. You just can't say, well, you can't talk about you, it's not fair for the court to say, it's not constitutional for the court to say, you can't talk about the September 2016 incident, you can't talk about police reform, but if you're talking about information coming from a specific source, then I think the Supreme Court allows a restriction on a source of information. Well, what is, what is it about the attachment to the order that says that you cannot not not that you can't broadly talk about the topic of what's on the video, but that you can only talk about it in a certain time and manner. Doesn't the order, I mean, the, the attachment to the order bar them from talking about the topic of whatever is on the video? That's what the language of it appears to say. I read it differently, Justice Hudson. I think that I read it as saying you can't talk about the things that you learned from the video, but you're still allowed to talk about the incident. And so if you learn it, if you come about it independently, if you come about it by generating facts or generating knowledge, then you're free to talk about it because you didn't learn that information solely from the body-worn camera footage. You learned it elsewhere. 
Well, they also, um, the, the attachment A also says that um, they can discuss it as necessary to perform their legal duties. And it, as members of the city council is how I understand that. In, in their motion to modify, they're saying, hey, we can't do our duties as city council members without being able to talk about this with the public. Um, was the trial court obligated to address that aspect in any detail in her um, just denial? I think that, I don't believe so. I think the trial court, it, it can, to the extent the trial court didn't address that in the order uh, in the order denying the modification, the motion for modification, I think that's an implicit denial. I don't think that that's been challenged on appeal. I think there's a suggestion in the reply brief that there's some tension between the trial court's order and the Public Records Act, or the, excuse me, the Open Meetings Act, but I don't think that that's been developed, and I think it's been waived before the court. Okay. If there are no further questions. Thank you, sir. Uh, we will now hear rebuttal. May it please the court. There's a tremendous number of uh, questions that were raised by the court in uh, questioning Amicus, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get to them all. I first want to say that the city's First Amendment rights are not at issue here. It is the council members in their official capacities. Those council members are here at the invitation of the trial court, who said to the city, if the, trial, if the council members have uh, impediments to the discharge of their duties, the city was to come back and ask for modification. That's precisely what the city did. The request for modification is in the record on pages 32 through 34, and that uh, delineates the changed circumstances. And as I said to Chief Justice Newby, it is the denial of the motion for modification that we are here about on appeal. If the uh, city is not able to assert the rights of its individual council members in their official capacities, which is how they were gagged, then they should never have been able to be gagged in the first place. The trial court would not have had jurisdiction, and it should be vacated as void ab initio. This is a content-based restriction. Everything about the statute is content-based. It's why the statute allows for the trial court to actually review the content in camera before making the decision. And I'll end with the Seattle Times rationale goes away when the public interest becomes involved. That's why in Seattle Times it's limited to pretrial discovery. And a case cited by Amicus in their brief shows the difference between civil discovery or pretrial discovery and then the First Amendment rights that adhere outside of discovery in dispositive motions or at trial. There is a First Amendment right to access to the courts, and that's why the standard for keeping something protected under uh, Seattle Times under a protective order is not the same as the standard to keep something protected sealed at trial or to close a courtroom at trial. Thank, thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. Mr. Clark. All rise. Yes, until 3.15 p.m. God save the state and this honorable court.